amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I feed the most fascinating people and we chat. Only at present, it tends to be over takeaway boxes. We are, of course, in lockdown. So myself and my guest are sat in our respective homes and I order a surprise food delivery for them and for myself, of course. Today, I'm video linking and eating with a director and writer, the man responsible for films like Baby Driver, Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. It's Edgar Wright. Having made Shaun of the Dead, it's quite ironic, 16 years later to the day that it was released, to walk around and recreate my own movie. (laughs) And just a mild trigger warning, at one point you'll hear Edgar and myself discuss dim sum topped with both caviar and gold leaf. I know it's disgracefully privileged behaviour and we do deserve to be punished. Then again, they were really nice dim sum. Hello, Edgar. It's lovely to Hello. see you. Hello, AJ. In the midst, nice to see you. In the midst of all this. Famously, as far as I'm concerned, you were the companion on a restaurant review with David Baddiel. You went and reviewed, <laughs> yes. He went and reviewed for the Sunday Times. Uh, and he managed to put the backs up of all restaurant critics by saying it was a job anybody could do. But he quoted <laughs> you as saying that restaurant critic was your dream job. It was true. I did say that to him when he asked me. He said, hey, I'm doing restaurant reviews for the Sunday Times. Do you want to come along to one? I said, oh, yeah, that's like a dream job for me. He goes, really? Isn't film director a dream job? I said, well, yeah, but I've always thought, that being a travel writer or being a restaurant reviewer would be an amazing thing to do. I find it tough to be a critic. I, you know, in a similar way with films, kind of in the last like 10 or 15 years, pretty much since I started making films, I, I then sort of stopped kind of publicly criticizing them. Obviously the only other film director that I can think of that was also a restaurant reviewer is the late Michael Winner. <laughs> so it's a funny thing in any way to aspire to be Michael Winner, but um I, I find I mean, you, you you tell me a funny story about him over Twitter. Oh, well, the, the one about him measuring tables. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I'll tell this story very quickly. He was he was at the Wolseley and he had a tape measure out. And he was measuring the table. And I went over to him because I knew him a little bit. And I said, Michael, what are you doing? And he said, they told me my usual table wasn't available, that this one was exactly the same size. And I said, so you're measuring? He said, yes, it fucking isn't. <laughs> He added to the gaiety of nations. Although you've you've been on record as saying there are certain winner films that you've quite liked, haven't you? There are some ones I quite like. There was one I watched the other day that I, I thought... I mean, obviously, like, when I was growing up, he was just sort of... became the sort of the punch bag of all sort of directors in terms of, like, in any, like comedy or like newspaper column if there was an, a, a chance to sort of beat up on Michael Winner you know it was he seemed like fair game or like well, then became like he's the worst director ever and there are some terrible movies that he's done don't get me wrong some like ones are really really bad like I saw his last film Parting Shots at the cinema me and David Williams went to see it together we're back in those days where you might pay money to go and you know, hate watch something, something else I don't do anymore. 
But Party Shots is like a really bad movie, and it's his last movie. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it stars Chris Rea, the singer. And if you oh God. if you didn't know that Chris Rea was a singer, you would watch that movie assuming that somebody's dad had won a competition to star in a movie. <laughs> the third Death Wish, the one shot in South London, is hilarious and highly entertaining. And then uh, I have. I've never seen Death Wish three. I think I need to see Death well, Wish. Well, Death Wish three is a funny one because it's set like in the Bronx and it is shot in Wandsworth because he had moved back to London and Charles Bronson said, I'm not going to do another death wish unless Michael Winner does it. And Michael Winner said, I'll do it, but we have to shoot it in London. So if you ever want to see South London standing in for New York, Death Wish 3 is your man. And then there are some terrible ones. Don't get me wrong. A film called Scream for Help is one of the worst films I've ever seen. And, uh, so there's some really bad ones. And then there's other ones. Well, that- isn't it brilliant? We, we, we've only been going a few minutes. And I've actually managed to get you to slag off films, which is the thing you said you didn't do anymore. Mind you, dear old Michael is no longer with us. We've got to get into the obvious thing, which is we are talking in the midst of the lockdown. Yes. So normally out to lunch, I take somebody out to a restaurant to eat. Uh, we'd recorded a few of those. They'll appear later down the line when we run this series out. Um, but then clearly they closed all the restaurants, so we couldn't do that anymore. So we thought the the best way to do it would be in for lunch and we'd get takeaways. So you've got a takeaway en route to you from a nearby restaurant. I haven't told you what it is. I was going to get a version of what you're going to get from a place around here in Brixton, but there wasn't anything. So in mm. fact, mine's on a, a, a 25, 30 minute bike ride and yours is on a seven minute bike ride. Oh, right. You know, I'm sitting in my, my office in uh, my office. It's an old bedroom turned into an office in my house in South London. Where exactly are you? You don't have to give the postcode, but roughly where are you? Well, I live in, I live in the West End. I live actually in Fitzrovia. So as you can imagine, Fitzrovia, which is uh, known for its restaurants, now has no restaurants. So it's funny, I don't live far away from Soho and, uh, or Regent's Park. And, you know, if I walk to Regent's Park, I can see some life. But Fitzrovia and Soho are absolutely dead. And it really is that having a Shaun of the Dead, it's quite ironic. 16 years later to the day that it was released, to walk around and recreate my own movie. <laughs> is, is, is it 16 years later today when is, we're talking? Yeah, or- that's right. Extraordinary. I mean, it has to be said also that both Nick Frost and Simon Pegg have kind of they've they've done their homage to a, a Shaun of a Shaun of the Dead scene in the in the midst of this. Yes. Did they tell you about that? Did they you know didn't that was going to happen? But I was totally I, in any other circumstances. I think I probably would have been annoyed if they hadn't run it past me. But I actually was given everything going on, and because I totally agreed with what they were saying, I, I wasn't mad at all about it. I thought it was kind of sweet. And I like that clearly, like, Nick Skyped in his part sitting on the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But other bits of that film have also been clipped and they've become memes during this whole circumstance. Yeah. It is slightly odd, isn't it? Simon and Nick did it with that video, but I'd done a similar thing on, like, Twitter and Instagram where I was getting sent that meme on a daily basis of, like, Sean with a pint of beer and saying, let's all go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint and wait until this all blows over. And that's like a meme that has come up frequently about anything. It came up about Brexit. It came up about the election. It comes up about any any sort of, like, crises. That meme will start going around. But in this particular thing, before they close the pubs, that the particular thing was like, no, the answer is not to go to the pub. So I actually, I actually put out the meme myself and I said, 
just to clarify, Sean takes everybody to the Winchester and 80% of his party die. <laughs> so let's be very clear. Going to the pub is not the option. You know, have a beer at home. Didn't you wonder out loud at one point whether there might be filmmakers trying to shoot a bit of B-roll on the empty streets of London? I'm sure they because- are. I mean, the irony about that is it's funny. I, I think exactly that's happening. I think somewhere in the world there's probably an independent filmmaker who's like making his own like twenty eight days later vanilla sky, quiet earth, I am legend epic. But everybody's seen it, everybody's living it. If after all this is fingers crossed all over and we do get to go back to the cinemas again, if there were like tons of films where there was like the empty earth deserted cities you'd be like yeah i've seen it i saw it every day when i walked to sainsbury's (laughs) so yeah you're no longer completely wondering did they shoot that at five o'clock in the morning on a summer's day uh not to quote morrissey because he's problematic but you know it is that thing of every day is like sunday every day feels like sunday morning right now in terms of what's open and the amount of people on the streets it's very strange let me go all the way back you you grew up in swanage Yes. That, until you were seven. And funny enough, uh, around the same time, I used to go on family holidays to the Knoll House Hotel at Studland Bay. Oh, yeah, Studland Bay. Oh, that's the door. I hear the, I hear the delivery. Is that the door? Yeah, it is. All right, go get your food. I'll go, I have to put some shoes on and go downstairs and get it. I'll be two seconds. All right, I have the food. You have the food. So I don't know whether you can work out where it's from. Yes, it, well, uh, it says is... on the bags, yes. Because <laughs> Hackersan so, have fancy uh, fancy takeout bags. So we were thinking that we're doing, you know, a, a version of Out to Lunch, but it's in for lunch, but it needs to be something, you know, pretty special. So the idea was to go Michelin-starred Chinese takeaway, <laughs> which, which is what you've got there. Thank um, you. And should we go with the starters first Yeah, of all? sure. I have, I have the receipt in front of me so I can see. But you, you call it and then I'll go and get it. I thought I'd go traditional. The first thing is sesame prawn toast. Nice. Mm. Um, by the way, have you noticed? So we got the, I got the dim sum, one of the dim sum selections, the supreme dim sum selection mm. because it's you. So I've actually sent you a takeaway with caviar on it and a bit of, have you got some gold leaf there? Oh, there's gold leaf on the dim sum, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen the caviar it's outrageous, though. Outrageous, isn't it? Oh, oh, don't worry, I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> they are they are extravagantly colourful dim sum, which is really great. Yeah, in fact, there is a link. I, I I believe you wrote one of the last scenes of Shaun of the Dead alone on September the eleventh. That's right, two thousand and one. I was in an office on Berwick Street, opposite Sister Ray Records, and next door to a a walk up brothel. <laughs> And Simon was filming something and I was going to go in and just finish the last scene because we were so nearly there and we were literally at the last scene to write, which we'd mapped out. And I went into the office on my own and it was September the 11th. I remember being in the office and then getting a text from a friend saying, turn the TV on. And I didn't have a TV in the office. So then I sort of and I sort of said, oh, a, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. I remember walking to Wardour Street and watching it on a, t- a communal TV in the um, office that uh, I sometimes did commercials in. It was a very, very surreal day. I, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people in London where, because it's somewhat removed from it, it was you could sort of kind of look into the people on the street and see the 50% that knew about it and were really worried about it. 
and the other 50% that you didn't know whether they didn't know or didn't care. And it was an a, a, a extremely surreal day. And it's surreal enough, I remember that I walked home. I didn't want to get on the tube and I didn't want to get on a bus. And I walked, I think, all the way to my friend's house and we watched the news together, something that now you can't do. It was in a time of crisis, I went round to his house, weirdly David Walliams again, <laughs> went over to his right. house and we sat there and watched the nine o'clock news because it was terrifying and everybody thought World War Three was going to kick off. But the other thing I remember in reference to Shaun of the Dead is there was that period where I think a lot of people felt the same way. And I think this is probably sort of similar to how people are feeling now about their creative endeavours. Is I remember thinking about our script, I thought like, why on earth would you make a comedy now? Like, how can we ever be funny again? Why would you make a comedy about the end of the world when 9-11 has just happened? And then strangely, it, it sort of, lots of things that happened in the script seem to sort of be happening for real. And all of the things that Sean does in the movie were also the things I did, is the first thing you do is you call your parents and you call your family and you just make sure that your nearest and dearest is somewhere safe and you know where they all are. It made everything sort of feel a lot more urgent. So it is a strange thing that, like, so we made that film and then, you know, even though it's a comedy, there are, like, sort of little echoes of it that keep happening in real life and now being no exception, you know. On September the 11th, I was reviewing Hakkasan. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd already arranged this before I'd, I'd, I'd clocked this relationship with 2011, September the 11th, that... Uh, Oh, that was where I was. I came out and got in a cab and asked to go to the observer's offices and the uh, the driver said, you're going to be busy because somebody's just crashed a, a plane into the Twin Towers. But the the thing is, when I mean, you've written about adversity and weirdness, people always want to normalise, don't they? They want to get back to a normal status in some way. Yeah. Part of the reason of writing Shaun of the Dead in the first place is that, you know, in a lot of American films, when you see like end of the world movies, you're usually focused around scientists or like the military or like the president or like the top people and um i think the shawn of the dead was an attempt to do a comedy about the end of the world where you're seeing normal humans coping with it and the joke of it which i think is also also borne out by the reality of these events is that normal life does go on and people's own like flaws and idiosyncrasies don't go away <laughs> because of something things are as normal sometimes as they are insane. And that's sort of the thing in, like, the, the, the two different apocalypse movies I've done, like Shaun of the and The World's End, is the idea of these, uh, like, annoying traits people have or, or, like, very human flaws. They continue throughout kind of the weirdest adversities. This has been such an interesting sort of period because it's kind of been a complete life change for everybody on the planet. And yet we're still the same people and having to rapidly adapt to um, hibernating. I, I watched, um, because I'm, I'm very conscientious, I watched uh, Hot Fuzz last night. Enjoyed it hugely. What struck me about the Cornetto trilogy, as they're called, so Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, World's End, is that they are all films about boring places made more interesting by events. Yes. <laughs> and, and I found myself wondering whether this was kind of a reflection of your imagination as a kid. Yes. You've talked about not being in London. You've talked about first being in uh, being in Swanage and then you moved, was it, to Wales in Somerset? Yeah. Where you actually shot Hot Fuzz. Yes. Um, 
Well, I, yeah, I think this was some kind of reflection of that interior monologue of you as a kid. When you're like in your preteens and teenage years, like beautiful pastoral Somerset is not something that you really appreciate at the time. Now, of course, the idea of going away from the city and getting into the country is like a beautiful thing. But at the time... Are you saying you were bored off your tits? Yes. <laughs> Being in Somerset, I look back on it extremely fondly. But of course, like you're, you're so aware that you're you're not in London and you're not in a big city and like cool things are happening elsewhere. But I think if I'd have grown up in London, I wouldn't have been making the same movies. Like all of, all of my movies have an element of wish fulfillment about them. And, and maybe like you said, there's an element of mischief about them because certainly Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and the World's End are about causing havoc (laughs) in either the suburbs or the country or in these satellite towns. I'm extremely fond of Wells and Somerset, and uh, I wouldn't be who I am without it. But at the same time, there's some glee in trashing the place. <laughs> How are your starters doing, by the way? Are you, I'm, re- are you... I'm ready for something else. I had my prawns, spicy prawn and my dim sum, so I could, I could move on to something else. Right, well, you've got three... There's a salad, actually. If you have a look... The duck salad, yeah. There's a crispy crispy duck salad, which sounds like a kind of mid-course to me. I will go and get that right now. Hang on. <laughs> this looks, this duck is, salad it, looks really good. It does, doesn't it? Crispy duck salad. Thank you, Hackerset. Mm, this is great. When you came to choose college, you went to pool. You didn't choose to go to London. I, you didn't run for the big city immediately. Well, I um, I didn't get into anywhere. Oh, right. Fair enough. By this point, I'd been making lots of films as a sort of teenager. And in fact, I'd actually been on TV a couple of times. How come? The thing that started it all in a way was one that my, my parents had bought me and my brother a secondhand Super 8 camera when we were like 14. One of those presents that goes between two birthdays and a joint Christmas present as well. But I started making like movies on that and said to my brother and then... In, like, 1991, Comic Relief and Going Live had this competition to make a film about one of the charities that Comic Relief supported. And I made this animation film in my bedroom, and it won. So when I was, like, 16 years old, I was on um, Going Live. (laughs) You know, a BBC... Who was the presenter at that point? Philip Schofield. um, Excellent. And Sarah Green. Gordon the Gopher was there. Philip Schofield, I've met him since, actually, and I reminded him of this. And he did remember me, and I reminded him that he had a packet of uh, cigarettes hidden in his chair, and that whenever it would go to a cartoon, out would come the cigarettes, and then Philip Schofield would be, like, puffing away. And I thought, like, oh, he's a rebel. And then I kept making films throughout that period, and, and I did end up, like, being an infrequent, like, Saturday morning kids guest on, like, shows like Going Live on Tyne Tees and... Um, other stuff with Yorkshire. So, so what they say, and here's Edgar, who's a who's an amateur filmmaker. Was that, exactly, that yeah. So where were you learning the grammar from? Where were, the grammar and vocabulary of of film? Just watching tons and tons of movies. So I would do this thing as, as well as going to the cinema a lot. There was a cinema around the corner for me, a beautiful Art Deco one called the Regal. What I would do during my like GCSEs and A levels is is if something was on TV late at night, I would just stay up and watch it. So if Halloween is showing on, like, Meridian at, like, 2.30 in the morning. I'm staying up to watch it whether I have school tomorrow or not. Because <laughs> I didn't have anything and Did to... your parents intervene at any point? Or were they like, well, it's all right, that's Edgar's thing and, and we're... I don't think they you know, knew. Uh, uh... I think there's a lot of kind of watching horror films late at night with the sound turned down. 
or watching like films with any kind of sex in them with the sound turned down where like you would have like be watching um you know some kind of like a you know kind of bosomy hammer horror movie like sort of with the sound as low as it could possibly go that you could hear it but mum and dad couldn't hear that you were watching the TV. So there's a lot of that. Uh, famously, you've said that actually to really understand a film, watch it with the sound off. Shot for shot for shot for shot. Do you think that you ended up focusing on the visual because of that, because of your secret film habit with the sound down or silence? Quite possibly. Film students who ask you a question that's sort of such a big question that seems impossible to answer, they're saying, where do you get your style from? I guess the only way I can describe it is it's just a sort of just just a taste thing, in the same way that you listen to tons of music and you like the bands that you like and the bands that you don't care for. Just films is like there's certain things that I'm into and I just watch and watch and watch to the point where it's all sort of going in to the point where sometimes you're consciously cribbing from something and sometimes it's something that's gone into your head and you've forgotten exactly where it's come from until you've watched it again and said, oh yeah. I watched that film when I was eight and that shot must have stayed with me. I was going to say, there's nothing wrong with impersonating or sort of imitating the things you love until you find your own voice, is there? I think there's this aspirational quality in Space, the TV show I did, and in Shaun of the Dead and in Hot Fuzz, which is hopefully charming in its own right, but I think is, is also real. It's sort of an extension of kids playing kind of like, you know, fancy dress in their parents' clothes. When I was growing up, the sort of British film industry sort of seemed so, like, wounded the entire time. It would go through periods of real pride and then other times where it seemed like it was always on, you know, the critical list. And it never seemed to be, like, consistently healthy. It would always be, like, you know, some Oscar triumph or, like, the British film industry is dead. I think there's probably something in me that making British films is that you're, you're aping something you're, or you're making fun of, like, sort of Hollywood movies. So... You know, Hot Fuzz is very clearly, what would it be like if you had all of these Hollywood theatrics of a big action movie in Somerset? And that's like, aside from the plot of the movie, that's the basic joke of that movie. And it's done with huge affection. Like, I never like calling them spoofs or send-ups. I hate the word spoof. Because I think spoof, it seems to kind of denote that you are, are savaging something. You know, things like a film like Scary Movie, is sort of seems so hateful of the horror genre, whereas Shaun of the Dead, I would hope, is like very affectionate. So we would start calling them like Valentines. Like Shaun of the Dead is our Valentine to the zombie film. Hot Fuzz is our Valentine to the action film. Food pun unintended. It was all baked together, <laughs> the idea of like watching tons of movies, wanting to be a filmmaker, but having absolutely zero context at all in the industry. And um, and so you're kind of like just riffing on things that you've seen in Hollywood and trying to filter it through your own experience. Hi there, I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on Out to Lunch. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch, gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time, but in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. 
With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. That's betterhelp.com slash out to lunch. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. How do you go from being Edgar Wright, the kid who plays with cameras and you go for a couple of years at Paul. How, how did you become the person behind Spaced? Was it just sheer bloody obstinacy and refusing to think you couldn't? I wanted to do the film and TV course at Bournemouth. So I, as an 18-year-old, probably rather cockily said, I want to be a director. And they said, you're too young to be a director. You should come back in a couple of years. Why don't you do this national diploma instead? So I did the national diploma at Bournemouth in audiovisual design. And then at the end of that two years... I reapplied to the film course as a director and they still said no. <laughs> and they said, you're too young, you should come back in five years. Now, by this... Have they apologised since at any point? They, they me, said, uh, we got that wrong. I'm now, an honor, uh, I'm now a, like a sort of like a, a, a doctor of that college. So that's nice. I got an honorary, you know, honorary oh, so degree. Dr. Wright. So I decided, it's maybe slightly in a fit of peak, that I was just going to make a movie. And so that summer, age 20, I... Um, managed to convince some local businessmen, I, no, I say local businessmen, a local businessman in Somerset to give me some money to make a movie. So I made this... How much? Uh, he gave me £11,000 and we shot <laughs> the entire movie on £11,000. And that was my first movie, Fistful of Fingers, which I was 20 when I made it, starred my school friends and college friends. And then I moved to London to edit it. And I didn't have anywhere, I didn't have any money. I was signing on. So I was like sleeping on my brother's floor. We were sort of somewhat illegally editing the film at Pinewood. <laughs> we were not really supposed to be there. And, you know, whilst they're making Bond films and massive films at Pinewood, I do mostly remember my time going to Pinewood being the tube to Uxbridge and then two buses and then a walk in the winter. <laughs> and that but was. How? How did you get yourself onto the Pinewood lot to edit something? Well, because um, the, one of the producers on the movie was basically his sort of first time sort of film producer, but he had worked in the post production department and he had convinced uh-huh. his supervisor to basically give us a broom cupboard. So it wasn't really like an edit suite. And I think we were just basically there under the radar, you know, and we weren't, certainly weren't supposed to be there like at night or on a Saturday and stuff. And did Fistful of Fingers get, get distribution? It did. It got released by a company called Blue Dolphin and it got shown at the Prince Charles Cinema in like November 1995. It came out the same weekend as Goldeneye. <laughs> and I remember that because I was standing outside the Prince Charles, totally broke. I remember like Fistful of Fingers was on at the Prince Charles and I didn't really want to watch it, but I had to introduce it and do Q&As. So I'd spend the running time of the movie walking around Soho, looking into restaurant windows that I couldn't actually afford to go into. <laughs> anyway, so around that time though, the people that how I met Simon was like two people who did go and see Fistful of Fingers at the Prince Charles. It was only on for two weeks. You know, like David Williams and Matt Lucas, who were both like 
up-and-coming comedians. Dave had been at Bristol with Simon Pegg. So I remember meeting Simon for the first time backstage at a Lucas and Walliam stand-up show at the Riverside Studios. And then they asked me to do their first TV show, which was on the Paramount Comedy Channel, which used to shoot out of Rathbone Place. And I did a sketch show with them called Mash and Peas. And then, and then immediately after that, I was still only 21, about to turn 22, I was asked to do another TV show at Paramount, and this time it starred Simon Pegg, Jessica Hines, Julian Barrett, Bill Bailey, all sorts of people. So I, Quite a good lineup. That was extraordinary to me, because I wasn't really, like, trained. Again, I'd sort of just, whatever I had, like, learned is by watching movies and making my own little silly amateur movies and whatever I'd learned at art college and then just gone straight into it. So doing TV stuff, I was just like really, you know, bluffing my way through it to a certain extent and um, learning on the job. I have to say, I've moved on um, to noodles and some beef with chilies, which you'll find. I'm going to do that in a second. Let me just, this duck was amazing, by the way. It was, wasn't it? Um, I have to say, if you, if you can run to a takeaway from Hakkasan, I think you should. Um, (laughs) And they'll deliver to you. Do you think the the imperative of timing in comedy, because you started doing a lot of comedy, and obviously this comedy runs through a lot of what you do, that that was a, a good discipline for the, the tightness of your material and your work after that? When I did Space, though, they were very, like, dense scripts and we had, like, a half-hour slot, so your style sort of starts to kind of, like, um, work out ways of packing in as much as you can possibly do. And also, I think one of the things that... I learned in that period, which I've kept to, is the idea of being in control of when a scene starts and ends by what the camera's doing. And if you watch a lot of modern comedies, American ones, like more like films where they just kind of improv like crazy, they can be they can be very funny, but they can tend to sort of bloat because like scenes will just kind of drag on on and on with like a particular argument or something like that. Whereas like doing spaced, you kind of had to figure out when to come into the scene and how quickly you could get out and what the last uh, line of the scene was so that the next scene started with an answer to that line. And that's something that I've kind of continued with in all of my movies. And, and it's, a, it's a way that you are in control of the scene and the pacing of it. So I think that that comedy sort of timing and also like the, the, um, the pacing of how to fit things into a half-hour show is something that I've continued with, really. Do you want to go get your noodles yeah, yeah, and your beef? And I'll, I'll throw in a supplemental. Mm. It's a very nice way of spending a Thursday lunchtime. Isn't it? Was music always key to what you did? I was always a huge music fan. I think it was really with Spaced was the first time I sort of started to be able to kind of like really use music in a really important way. Like because of the Channel 4 uh, licensing agreement, with, within reason, you know, I could sort of put anything I wanted in space, and there wasn't like a music supervisor on that show. It was just basically me. So I was in the edit the whole time. You know, that, 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 I think that really shaped kind of like the use of music in what I do doing that show. And then, and then in Shaun of the Dead, like there are sort of key scenes that are like the, the song is like integral to the piece where, you know, when you're writing a film like Shaun, which is like, you know, is like a, a first proper feature. And if you write a scene like with a Queen song in it, you've got to hope that you can actually get that song, you know? So you'd... How hard was it to get Don't Stop Me Now for that scene? It actually was... They were very helpful. Did you play it out on set? 
So they 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 had the rhythm to beat the zombie with the sticks. This is oh, the yeah. scene inside the Winchester when they're banging them out. Not only did you have to you had to clear it before. There was no other option because we refer to it in the scene and it's the whole thing is choreographed to that song. So you and this is something that I did all the way through Baby Driver. But the actors are wearing earwigs which are like little um transmitters that so they can hear the music but sound can't pick it up. So they can basically do their choreography in time and talk over it and sound can record the dialogue. So that's the first time I used one of those um, earwigs. And then in Baby Driver, we pretty much used earwigs all the way through. Every scene, you've described it as being almost a musical mm. in that it is choreographed minutely to everything. I, I, I took one note, which was the moment when the windscreen wipers in the opening scene go in time to the music. And I found myself thinking, this is a this is attention to detail. Did you actually have to find a way to set the motor on the windscreen wipers to be in time? Yes. We so basically with Baby Driver, I did exactly what we did the, with the Queen scene times like thirty five. I think it's like thirty five songs or thirty six in Baby Driver. But with that thing with the windscreen wipers, we did. I think what we did originally is I said to my production designer, I said, "Can you make the motors go in time in the music?" And we tried that, and then I think eventually it became easier to just do it manually. So somebody was actually controlling them, but he was listening to the music and doing it, you know. But it was real. It and wasn't it was to Bellbottom. To Bellbottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. I'd sort of dreamed up the idea for Baby Driver 22 years before the movie came out, because I remember I had a cassette of Orange by the John Spencer Blues Explosion with the first track of which is Bellbottoms. I just listened to that song over and over again on cassette. And I started to listen to that song and imagine this car chase. Back then I was like 21 years old and there's no way I can make a car chase movie. So it was sort of an idea I just had to bank. You did, you did do a dummy run at it. You did, mint, was it the tune by Mint Royale? Yes, which was in, from 2002. I now say that if you wanted to see a version of Baby Driver with one of the hosts of the Great British Bake Off... And this is it, because Noel Fielding was the star of that. Like, it's funny, like, after Drive came out, when Baby Driver's being made, people were like, isn't Baby Driver just a rip-off of Drive? And I'd be like, well, if you look at my music video from 2002... <laughs> uh, and then also, you know, you could say, well, really, like, we're both ripping off uh, Walter Hill's The Driver from 1978. But I was, I was quite pleased that I had this video as, like, a proof of, like, this idea is an older one. What's really striking to me about Baby Driver is the extreme attention to detail. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to whether that applies to the rest of your life. Um, I think... Are you, are you a details person? Do you obsess about stuff? I, I do. I think as a, as, a, as a young film fan, films that we would have a lot to kind of digest would always appeal to me because sometimes when you have a favourite uh, film, it's like being you're in the club and it's like once you into something you're really into it and then you're scouring every frame for details and so many filmmakers from like you know Stanley Kubrick to like um the Coen brothers uh, or even like Dario Argento like so people who kind of like pack the frame with like little shots that mirror each other or little kind of foreshadowings of things that are about to happen in like sort of shots or images or objects I love all that stuff and then I think when we made Space the TV show we, we made that show just at the point where the internet was really starting to kick off because it was like 
1999. It would always amaze us that, like, no matter how dense the detail was in space or the little references or things going on in the back of frame or just, like, the sort of the the numbering on things, people would always notice. And so I think you're always, like, making... You're making the movie as if you were, like, the um, person who was uh, going to enjoy it most if you hadn't made it. And I guess I was that kid who would watch films a hundred times and try and soak up every detail if I possibly could and feel like I knew it. In- Isn't it true, though, that there was uh, you were the specialist subject, somebody's specialist subject on Mastermind? That's right. And, and you didn't do brilliantly on your own question? It was something where I thought, well, if I'd been on that chair and had to answer questions about my own films, <laughs> I would not have got that one. It was something like, what degrees did Nicholas Angel get at university? Oh, hang on. I only watched it last night, so I should be able to say uh, politics, philosophy, it's politics. Um, well, I see, I've forgotten it already. One of them is sociology, for sure, and it's at Canterbury University. I know it's Canterbury University and it's sociology, but I think there's... He got a double first in something and sociology at Canterbury <laughs> University, but even now... Even though it was on Mastermind, I've forgotten what the first one is. Somebody out there will know it immediately <laughs> and say, oh, maybe it is politics. When you go into a shoot like Baby Driver, are you completely storyboarded and you know exactly what's going to happen on every single day? Or are you someone who leaves space for other stuff to happen? Or is it just too expensive an idea? The only way to get through that is to have like a military plan for the day to kind of like just, you know, like, have things planned out to the millisecond so there's like no room for discussion on the day of like how is this going to be done now i've sort of sort of kept to that in a way because i always want to try and get the max out of like the budget i always like to plan everything like a storyboard everything i do a shot list we've rehearsed everything that needs to be rehearsed so there's nothing on the day that we're trying to figure out there are of course happy accidents where there are things that like you didn't intend to do that like it's just a, something that happens on the day that's brilliant. Or usually it might be something with a location. Is the location offers up something or obstructs something else. If you're a director that is like sort of meticulous in your planning, there are some actors that, you know, do not want to look at storyboards and do not want to know about exactly, you know, the, the want to feel like that they can kind of create. And so you have to kind of be strategic about how you work with actors in terms of, the people who want to know everything is like, show me what you want me to do. Yeah, show me the storyboards. You know, show me this rehearsal video. And some actors who want to kind of feel like they can experience it for real. So sometimes... Is that frustrating? It's just every actor is different and you just have to make it work for them. I mean, somebody somebody said to me something about Baby Driver once that they said it as a, as a, a compliment. And I realised that... It is a very accurate description of the job of director where they saw Baby Driver and I think they were talking about the fact that the cast were quite sort of diverse and, you know, and interesting in their kind of like different backgrounds and different talents and sort of. And somebody said, oh, I love the movie and the cast were great and everybody was in the same movie. (laughs) And I thought when they said that, I thought, oh, that's a really good description of what a director does. It is the director's job. And this goes for the crew and the cast is to make sure that everybody's making the same movie. That's really about communication and transparency because other directors, maybe like Kubrick or David Fincher, could be super secret in terms of like they have a particular process and only their like 
you know, kind of like really close kind of colleagues will know what's going on and the rest of the cast and crew may not. But I sort of tend to go the other way where I, I sort of like to share everything with everybody. So people are like working through the day knowing what we're trying to achieve, you know? By the way, you've got two other dishes. Yeah, what should I go for next? Um, there's some chicken and there's, I think, a fish dish which looks very saucy. There's a picking prawn saucy What dish. did you go for next? One of the funny things about doing these is that the interviewee ends up talking a lot more than <laughs> yes. I do. So, you, you so I've already gone through the rice and the chicken, which <laughs> okay. is great. Let me do that. Um, so the king prawn is, spri- is spicy prawns and it's in a kind of coconut oh, yeah, sauce and then there's some chicken That's exactly clip. what it was, the prawn thing, yes. Okay, great, I've got the chicken now. Mm. I'm kind of curious. You exude confidence. And I'm curious, as, and there's no reason why you should, so don't take it the wrong way. But was there ever any point when you got onto film sets where you suffered from imposter syndrome? Oh, my God. I think I have that every day. I genuinely have that kind of um, nauseous butterfly in the stomach feeling at the start of every day. Getting up in the morning, I tend to sort of, I've done the storyboards already, I tend to do my shot list first thing in the morning. But then that drive to work, and especially just like the getting onto set and the the half an hour before filming starts, I'm always anxious. I always feel like I'm going to get found out. <laughs> and I think the day that like you don't feel like that is probably where you've slipped into some kind of complacency. I mean, I can't be healthy, but I feel like it is a healthy thing to sort of keep you on your toes. It's kind of like a humbling thing to feel. So I do feel that, if not imposter syndrome, just that feeling of like... Uh, anxiety at the start of every day you've stayed here you you i'm sure you've come and gone from los angeles a lot but you stayed here an awful lot your next film i don't know how much you can talk about the 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 soho project here's the thing so what i can tell you about the soho project which is called last night in soho is it is like one of the inspirations is you know for the last 25 years or 26 years of living in london I've spent an inordinate amount of time walking the pavements of Soho and Fitzrovia late at night because when you're editing or making a show, you're always like, you know, in Soho. So I spent an enormous amount of time there, maybe more than I've ever even spent on my own couch at home. It's like Soho after dark becomes kind of like thing like on the stroke of midnight, it becomes a different place. It's obviously nothing like it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, I guess when I first moved to London in the mid-90s, like, Soho was still pretty... Um, there was still a, quite a large element of the red light district, and that's mostly gone away, but sort of what the movie is about is how the ghosts of that stuff never go away. Were you able to walk to the shoot every day? Yeah, a weird thing would be, like, shooting in Soho, like, on a night shoot, it would be the strangest thing of, like, the summer come up and that would be the end of the day... And I would say to the crew, uh, okay, well, that's a wrap, I guess. The sun came up, so see you guys tomorrow. And put on my rucksack and walk home. And then I found one place, one cafe, that was just opening up at like 4.45. And I would wander in. I said, are you open? He goes, yeah, I come in to make the pancakes. I said, I'll have some pancakes. So I then would have like <laughs> pancakes at five in the morning, like on the way home from work. Very <laughs> good. Oh, I have to ask you, uh, the Brussels sprouts story that you ended up eating uh, Brussels sprouts with Kamal Nanjiani, the guy, the writer star of The Big Sick. What's this story? Why did you end up eating Brussels sprouts? I was always on board with Brussels sprouts. I never used to understand people's okay. problem with them. And even when they were, like, really boiled, I didn't have a problem with them. But I find it funny in the last, like, 
15 years, they're like the coolest kind of um, side to have in the States. Oh, yeah. Have, have you ever seen that Portlandia sketch with like um, about called Cel- Celery? Like no, there's tell a me. brilliant sketch in Portlandia that's worth watching where it's about all the different vegetable salesmen and they're having their like a- AGM. And um, Fred Armisen is playing the guy in charge of the celery account. And like, he's got nothing to add, but like Mr. Brussels sprouts played by Steve Buscemi in the episode is like a rock star. Cause it's like, um, oh, here's, you know, handling the Brussels sprouts account. And like, he comes in like a rock star because he's got like a, you know, like a deal with Virgin Atlantic. And then they come around the table and they say, um, you know, celery man, what have you, what have you got? He goes, oh, he goes, well, um, we still obviously have, um, our business with Bloody Marys. <laughs> <laughs> so like Brussels sprouts are fucking everywhere in every Los Angeles restaurant uh, mostly like kind of um, you know roasted Brussels sprouts with bits of uh, pancetta on them there's a there's a restaurant that uh, in the neighborhood that I live in in Los Angeles called Little Dom's which is in an area called Los Feliz me and Emily Gordon and Camille Nangiani would go there quite frequently and I would always order Brussels sprouts and Camille and this was around the time when the Oscars were coming up and the Big Sick was one of the potential nominees And I remember Kamel saying to me, he said, I can't do Brussels sprouts. I just don't get it. And uh, I said, if you get an Oscar nomination, you have to eat an entire bowl of Brussels sprouts. And he was like, deal. So then when the Oscar nominations came out and Baby Driver got three nominations for sound and editing and Big Sick got a nomination for Best Original Screenplay, I said, "Okay, we're going to Little Dom's, champagne and Brussels sprouts. (laughs) And so we had like a bottle of champagne and I made him eat a whole bowl of Brussels sprouts. That's the story. It didn't. It Fantastic. didn't convince him. It didn't change his mind on Brussels sprouts. I will say that. <laughs> well, I, I will admit that if, if I thought about it, I would have tried to get you some Brussels sprouts for today. Oh, um, so basically, I, I failed you. No, I'm always down for Brussels sprouts. Um, but I think we've done pretty well for two people in lockdown. Absolutely. Um, so it, all that really remains for me is to say thank you for staying in for lunch with me, from you up in there in Fitzroy and me in Brixton. And uh, for managing the takeaway, I, I, I've got a feeling you never got to the prawn dish, but I'm here to tell you the spicy prawn dish was really, I'll really have good. It, it's, I'll either have it right now or, I'll, like I said, I'll make this last for another week. Excellent. Do enjoy. Thank you so much. Well, glad to hear that Edgar had plenty of food left to last him at least a week. And if you fancy having what we had, gastronomically speaking, you can order Hackersand's Finest in London via both Deliveroo and the bespoke delivery company Supper. They also have restaurants in some of the major cities in the US, Middle East and Asia. I strongly recommend the Sanpai Chicken Clay Pot. And if you're not sated on the podcast front, well, please feel free to open the store covers for more episodes from Series 1 and 2 of Out to Lunch wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could stretch to a five-star review and share us, would be eternally thankful it helps other people to find us and makes us feel better about ourselves out to lunch is a something else and jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the mix engineer was josh gibbs the assistant producer was rosie marotra the producer is selena ream and the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman and next week it's the former labor cabinet minister strictly contestant and twitter star it's ed balls but at that point, my agent's wife, who's brilliant, she said, I know what we'll do. And she went to the kitchen, came back in with 20 small glasses and a bottle of Harvey's Bristol Cream. And she poured everybody at nine in the morning a small glass of sherry. And they all toasted my demise.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 